What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today my guest is Todd Cashton. All right, and check this out. You'll you'll all see this in the next week or two, but I don't think I've ever had a Todd on the podcast. And within the last week, I've interviewed two Todds, so there's another Todd coming on. But anyways, this is the first Todd, and yeah, Todd Cashton. He is. Uh, just like a phenomenal psychological researcher. He's a professor. And you'll hear me <laughs> in this episode realize that he actually co-authored one of my other favorite books. It's about, uh, it, well, it's called The Upside to Your Dark Side, something along those lines. But yeah, I, I didn't even realize he wrote that book too. And it's phenomenal. So I hope I can have him come back on here after I reread that book because uh, it's so, so, so good. But anyways, Today, we're talking about his brand new book that just came out this week, and I was fortunate enough to get an early copy of it, and it's called The Art of Insubordination. So check it out. This this book is so, so, so important, and I, I had a blast talking with Todd. He's a cool guy, too. But, you know, this is all about how to dissent, right? Because uh, as you'll hear in this episode, I... I've seen far too many just tragedies, right? These these terrible circumstances happen because nobody spoke up. Um, I had a guest on a while back. Uh, God, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but we were talking about the bystander effect. And this is something that happens a lot, but oftentimes it's just because people are too afraid to speak up, whether it's you know, breaking away from the group, whether it's you know because they might get fired. But we we sit back and we watch like, things go terribly wrong that could have been stopped at some point. So that's why this book is so important. So Todd and I, you know, we discuss how people can become what he calls uh, a principled rebel, right? Because one of the things is none of us like, you know, just uh, we don't like contrarian, someone who's just always taking the opposite stance. Like that's, you know, that's not a fun person to be around. But there are times when we need uh, diverse thinking. We need someone to speak up. We need somebody who's seeing something that we don't see because conformity is absolutely brutal. But as you'll hear me mention in this episode too, my favorite aspect of this book is that Todd teaches you how to uh, dissent, right? How uh, this fine art of insubordination, how you could do this without being a dick about it. Right? Because I think, I think the etiquette is where a lot of people are lacking. And then everybody's like, well, well, why doesn't anybody listen to me? And it's because you're probably being an ass about it. So there's a lot that we discuss about, you know, uh, how to listen to others, how to create a, 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 an environment where people feel comfortable dissenting and all that kind of stuff. So we're not just, you know, steering the ship into the freaking iceberg. <laughs> but anyways, his book is phenomenal. So do yourself a favor, do this world a favor, head down to the description, make sure you're following Todd and grab a copy of his book. It's so, so, so important. And, you know, another thing to pay attention to, we also discuss how we could teach our children to dissent properly when they see something's wrong so they can grow into adults who do this you know properly all right so make sure you grab a copy of todd's book and before we get started if you're new make sure you're subscribed to the podcast make sure you're following it uh we have a, a bunch of great episodes i'm constantly releasing new ones schedules changing a little bit but i have a ton of guests lined up uh so yeah we'll be cranking out episodes still like, i'm probably gonna have two more next week so make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes and if you've been here for a minute and you haven't yet and you enjoy what we're doing here do me a favor head over to apple Podcasts, leave a rating leave a review 
it would mean the world to me. And lastly, uh, yeah. Uh, make sure you follow me over on Instagram and Twitter because I love chatting with all of you, getting book recommendations. And yeah, that way you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. But I uh, I also, you know, I write a ton and I have other projects going on. So you won't miss any of it if you're following me on social media. And I'm also on YouTube. Some of you know this, but I have been uploading a lot of video uh, versions of these episodes to the Rewired Soul YouTube channel. So check that out. All right. But anyways. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Todd Cashton about his brand new book, The Art of Insubordination. All right. Hello, Todd. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm awesome. I just had my morning pick-em-all session and I'm ready to now mix it up with a little brain action. I love it. I love it. And I just, uh, I was just telling you before, I literally just finished the book uh, this morning and I'm very happy because there is an audio version and I'm an audio listener, but, but yeah, for everybody tuning in who has yet to be introduced to you, um, can you discuss a little bit of your background and then what this book is all about? Sure. So I'm a professor of psychology at George Mason, and I had the fortune of starting grad school the same year that Martin Seligman coined the term positive psychology. Mm. So for 23 years now, I've been running the well-being laboratory and studying all those topics you wish someone would bring up at a cocktail party, meaning mm-hmm. a purpose in life, creativity, the science of love, human sexuality, happiness, mm. um, and now we're moving into the world of principled rebels and rebellions and dissent. Yeah. So, so tell me about that. How did, how did positive psychology kind of go into this whole world of insubordination and dissent? Well, the last book that I wrote with Robert Biswaziner was the upside of your dark side. So in some ways this is like a trilogy and this is the one that stands out for me where we were basically exploring of everybody was talking about mindfulness being the panacea of life's woes, whether you want to improve your poker game, you want to be Mm -hmm. a better snooker paper, you want to have a better relationship with your kids. And people were talking about how to manage your anxiety and um, get rid of guilt and shame. And we thought everything seemed a little bit too extreme. I don't know if the science shows such extreme nature of it. And we basically found there's a ton of research of showing the benefits of being a little bit anxious. If you want to figure out whether someone's lying or not, it's actually be a benefit to be a little bit sad as opposed to happy. Mm. I mean, if you, just think about it. Think about when you hang out with your kids or your romantic partner is when you're in a really good mood, you don't let things break your good mood. So you don't notice the lipstick on, lipstick mm. on the lapel. You mm. don't notice the perfume or the cologne that's kind of hanging off of them. You don't notice that your kid has a bunch of papers that uh, look like they're beer labels in their back pocket. You're just happy that they're around. And when you're a little bit sad, you're very attuned to things that are off kilter and left of center. Mm-hmm. And so this book was an extension of that as opposed to a self-help book. It's kind of a social health book, yeah. which is, it's not really about rebels and it's not really about the dead. The book is really about what is, what psychologically and socially do we need as human beings to get closer to a utopian ideal of society? Mm. And there's a lot of talk about problematic social norms that we have, you know, a spike in polarization. We've got Mm -hmm. a spike in intolerance. We have a a spike in political extremism, but there's not much discussion about 
exactly how you go about modifying changes in an effective, sustainable way. And the real mantra of the book is that principal dissent is the greatest safeguard against conformity mistakes. And there's a whole bunch of them that we're going to probably get into over the yeah. next hour or so. Yeah, yeah, I was just, I was super excited. As soon as I saw the title of the book, I'm like, I need to get in touch with this guy, figure out how to how to get my hands on it because I I love it. And by the way, real quick to out myself, I had literally no idea until you just said it that you co-authored the Upside to Your Dark Side. I absolutely loved that book, and I just like I randomly picked it up and loved it. So maybe maybe we'll have you back on to go back and talk about that yeah. book because it was fantastic. Thank um, you, appreciate it. But uh, yeah, so so with so with this, right? So I think uh, a good foundation to start with the listeners uh, to get them kind of in the groove of where you're going with all this. You talk about principled rebels, all right? So so yeah, like there's a lot of talk about you know within organizations and making change. And you have a lot of like stories and everything. But how are you defining like a principled rebel? Yeah, this is pretty important because we definitely have a lot of people disagreeing with the status quo, and a lot of them are reckless dangerous, problematic. I mean, you could start with Charlottesville, Virginia, you know, those guys. Mm. And I guess there was some gals holding tiki torches running around the, the neighborhood. You can't say that they were principled. They might have had views that could have been worked with constructively, maybe, but their motives weren't principled. Their mm -hmm. behaviors weren't principled. They were looking for some, some damage and some arguments and some, some nice YouTube videos to give them some publicity. Yeah. So there, I basically transformed it in 60 years of research into a formula. And the reason that the, a formula or an equation is useful, because you can figure out, do you want to increase the numerator to improve principled rebels, or mm -hmm. do you want to decrease the denominator? And so there's two different ways of intervening. So two of the big elements in the numerator is authenticity and contribution. And let me just kind of just do a quick quick rub through of those yeah. is that for the authenticity is the beliefs, the attitudes and the behaviors that you are aspiring to work towards because you think conventional and mainstream thinking is problematic. Is this genuine? Is this fit with your values? Is it aligned with your personality? If so, you get a check mark that you're in the direction of principled rebellion. If it's just to win publicity points, just to win some some, you know, win some fans on social media. It's because this is what your group is saying. So, you know, if you say this, you might get status in the group. That's a deviation from authenticity. Mm -hmm. It's still valuable. And I know you had William Storrs on your podcast earlier talking mm -hmm. about, you know, the real strong desire to fit in with the group. Well, you have to, for this, are you doing it because you care about the group's health and longevity? Or mm -hmm. are you doing it because of ego? Because you know that if you repeat the mantras of the group, then you're going to be beloved by them. So that's yeah. one of the elements. The other one's the contribution piece. And this is to kind of rule out the psychopath, the sociopath, and just the evil characters in the world. And that is, is the motivation behind your push and prod about orthodoxy? Is it because you're trying to improve society, improve your well-being? improve the well-being of other people without detracting from the well-being of other people? Or is it something that's impulsive? It's something that it makes you just feel good or something that's actually mm. um, you, out of revenge or spite, for example. So all of those elements have to be there. And then the 
And if you increase any of those, you increase kind of the principal resilience. Yeah. At, no, go ahead. And so the, the denominator is about social pressure. Yeah. There is the pressure to stick with, stick with the path, stick with the norm and stick and, and conform and be a good person that just yeah. does what they're supposed to do. You don't question your elders. You don't question authority figures. You don't question your boss. And if you're an intern, yeah. you have not earned the privilege to speak out your ideas and what's wrong with the company. And all of that is a barrier and obstruction for getting society moving in the right direction. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, we'll, we'll dive into, because I love that towards the end of the book where you talk about like teaching our kids, right? Like I love that because it's something I've been, you know, talking with my son about because, you know, one of the thing, one of the issues is conformity. Right. And that's something I, I worry about, uh, you know, with my son, because you can get a group of kids and, you know, they're, they're all pressuring each other and all that. But before we dive into some of that stuff, something uh, that came to mind. So a, a topic that I am obsessed with is self-deception. Right. So I'll give a little background. Like you're talking about, like when we're when we're, you know, looking at this and being a principled rebel, we got to like check our motives and our motivations. And that's something when I got sober in 2012, that's something that was just drilled into my head, right? They were just like, check your motives, check your motives, check your motives. Because I realized a lot of times, like even when I was doing good, right? It, let's say I, I helped a friend out. I wasn't helping a friend out of the kindness of my heart. I was doing it to keep score so I can call in a favor later, right? So I always right. had to start checking my motives. So in, in the realm of self-deception, like something that I think is very relevant right now, and you talk about this in the book, like you don't just want to be like, uh, a contrarian for no reason. So let's talk about just some of the topics in uh, the media lately, which is like COVID vaccines and all of these. So the question I always ask, I, I actually did a poll on Twitter the other day of like, do you think like true evil exists, right? Because there's a lot of black and white thinking as you probably know, yeah. you know? And, and so when I see uh, some of these doctors who come out and like, oh, the vaccines are dangerous and they cite all these studies that have been debunked or they're bad and all these other things right i'm always looking at them i'm like do you believe this right do you act like are you deceiving yourself into believe this or kind of like what you said are you doing this for status are you doing this for you know attention are you doing this for money like because we we can lie ourselves into believing that our motives yeah. are good so with that being said how can we know that we're being principled and not just lying to ourselves like, oh, I'm doing good, but really there's some other motives going on that we're not even aware of. You know what I mean? God, Chris, you were asking the hardest question to answer <laughs> for this entire, which tells you, but this is, I'm, I'm, you're making me really pleased that I'm actually on the show right now. <laughs> this, is so, this is so important. So there's, there's a few things that throw out in here. Um, and a lot of it's backed by science. One of the things is we can, we can look towards our behavior to get an idea about our motives and not have to do the dig, you know, the deep dig therapeutic dive of like, what's the underlying kind of the true real underpinnings. You know, I teach this class on well-being, and I've been teaching it since I was a grad student in 1999. And I never have taught a class on altruism. And this is, mm -hmm. and it's not to challenge, um, you know, the story that you mentioned before, you know, when you were getting sober and often you would do favors to kind of just keep something in the bank account that you can pull yeah. up later. But 
in some ways, when you look at the literature on how beneficial kindness is and generosity and compassion, when you express it leads to another person being there, you know, when they're suffering from something like substance use problems or stage three cancer, you just pop over and then make dinner for someone without them asking for Mm-hmm. regardless of whether you're doing it because you feel good or not, regardless of whether you're doing it because you know you're going to have a rainy day where you're going to need people because we're all going to have tough, tough times of loneliness and minor to major depressive episodes, much less anxiety. It has the beneficial effect on the other person, regardless of the underlying motive. So that's in the realm of kindness, generosity, compassion, and empathy. If you look to your behavior, you really can get, two places where we can find of this question of, is it principled or lacking in principle? One is what do you do when no one's looking, when nobody can pay attention and nobody has access to what you read, to what you write, to what you say to people. Um, and, and, and even kind of, you know, your, your inner dialogue about how you truly think about the people in your social world. How do you truly think about your grandmother? How do you truly think about your, adjacent next door neighbors? Um, How do you truly feel about the people that you work with? These are things that people don't have access to. And if you are loathing and despising other people, if you are undermining other people and they never find out about it, these, you know, these are the subtle behavioral residue of unprincipled behavior. Mm. And if you're reading about self-help books and you're not posting on Goodreads and you're not posting your recommendations online, you're doing it because you're doing, you want to do the work of improving who you are. You want to be a better steward in the world in terms of contributing to your neighborhood, your family, your friends, their lives, and even people that are strangers that need help. These are all signs that you're moving in the principled realm. And if you take Two, two sets of groups at the political extremes, at the margin, will play with the true white supremacists, true neo-Nazi characters, which are much smaller in number that, than the, the media <laughs> yeah. times to attend to. You know, I asked this question on social media. How many neo-Nazis do you actually think there are in America? And most of my friends, a large number of my friends, have alphabet soup after their names. They're pretty smart characters, or at least... Yeah play them in front of university students. This was the range. The range was 250 to 35 million people in the United States. Get out of here. Get out of here. And here's the thing that I know, no, I had to say, and I think, I think I actually verbalized your guttural sound (laughs) on social media and here, and that wasn't the average was close to 15 million. In terms of, and this is dozens of people. And it's just of, do you really think there are 15 million neo-Nazis? I mean, that's, I mean, that's the size of a large number of the 196 countries in the world that you're talking about. They can form a country. Yeah. I live in Las Vegas. I think our our population's like a little over a million, maybe between one and 2 million. So like you have to multiply by 15. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it gives you an idea of a conformity mistake, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm going to go through a lot of these, I think, and it's fun. They're fun to do. They really get concrete about this. I'm not saying that racist people aren't there. What I'm saying is racist, truly racist people that believe that you, if you have black or brown skin, you should not have a job. You should not be near my kid. You definitely cannot date my kid. And I 
if I was alone in a desert island, I would want you to die before me. That's what true racist actually their their ideology is. Yeah. They love the fact that there are people with PhDs to MDs that believe that there are 14 million people out there because oh, for sure. then they can hide. They can hide in coffee shops working there. They can hide as librarians. They can hide as police officers. They can hide in the FBI and the CIA. They love this stuff. And I think about this all the time. I obsess about social norms. When yeah. you have a dysfunctional social norm and you misattribute good people or ambiguous people as bad people, the bad guys and gals love this stuff. And so we need people to say, we need a better calibration and assessment device to figure out who are the good guys and gals and who are the bad guys and gals. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, it's bonkers. Like even using that, uh, you know, that example of white supremacists and stuff. So like, uh, I don't look it, but I'm half black. And it's interesting hearing my dad's story. It's like my dad graduated uh, in the late 60s, right? And like his stories of racism are very few and far between. Right. And and so I have experience with my like a whole half of my family, like a lot of they're they're more light skinned and stuff. So that might, you know, help a little. But when I see kind of like the media sensationalizing how many white supremacists there are or certain like social commentators and everything like that. And like you said, like they they love people thinking that there there are these huge numbers of them and all that. It's it's really interesting. I think, you know, that's, for example, uh, what I was thinking of, too, when you were getting estimates. One of the reasons, even though I'm terrible at math and hate numbers, I try to read books on like how to like read data and ask questions, right? And like having a good like base number, right? Like before I would answer a question like that, I'd be like, well, what's the population of like a large city? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because because that like helps me be like, okay, well, it can't be that many. But but anyways, when I'm when I'm thinking about this kind of like dissent and everything and the social norms and uh, kind of going back to like the status and self-deception and all of that. Let me ask you this, because you do you do talk about fostering an environment where people feel comfortable dissenting, right? Something that I've realized over the years, and you've you've probably noticed this with polarization, is we we as people think we are much better at mind reading and deception detecting uh, deception detection than we actually are, right? That's right. And we think we know another person's motives. So anyway, say, say I'm the boss, I'm the manager, right? And I, you know, uh, somebody speaks up in a meeting and they're dissenting a little. And my brain automatically goes to a place of, oh, this person's just trying to make me look bad or this person's just trying to get a raise or this per you know what I mean? So when someone is dissenting in our group or in our organization, how do we check ourselves to make sure we're not attributing false motives on them uh, this kind of the flip side of checking our own motives. You know what I mean? And you ask really good questions here. Okay, first <laughs> of, let's 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 get really concrete and practical here because there's there's a lot of strategies that you can deploy. Um, you have you have to have safeguards against self deception, and your ego is going to be affected by dissenters. I mean, so let me pull back for a second before I give some concrete strategies. The challenge of a dissenter is these two issues. Your immediate response is, if I'm noticing this problem and nobody else is talking about it and nobody else is doing it, and this is in the group that I care about and I identify with, whether it's a political party 
whether it's you're working at Apple or YouTube or whether it's, you know, you're working at a sports facility for, you know, developing it, you know, young, you know, young youth soccer, football and basketball games, wherever, whatever we're talking about is you ask yourself, if nobody else is saying anything, I must be wrong. I mean, mm. we just, and that's actually, in some ways, it's a beautiful thing is that you acknowledge other people's perspectives, you take it in, and you don't think that you're holier than thou and that your view and intelligence and wisdom is automatically better than everybody else. But it stops people in their tracks from saying something publicly, which can be said in a number of different ways. It could be said with a place, from a place of curiosity. You know, I wonder if we're going in the right direction. And I just had a few questions and a few thoughts. And can we just like take a minute and play with them? Mm-hmm. And you could see by just the inflection, which is I'm not poking you in the eye and I'm not trying to pull you, you know, with the stick and rip you off the stage. I'm actually just saying I care about what we're doing. And I have there's a gut guttural instinct that tells me there's a better way for this. The other thing that a dissenter asks is that. Do I have the temperament and the mental capacity right now, the bandwidth to handle the negative emotions that I'm going to elicit, the scorn that mm. I'm going to elicit, the rejection, the ostracism, the possible banishment, um, the friction, uh, the static? Because it's almost a given, just as you describe it in your you know, hypothetical example, somebody's ego is going to be hurt. Nobody says in a meeting, oh, my God, Chris. I'm so glad that you're going to expand the time of this office meeting by you asking more questions and bring up more <laughs> ideas and more criticism. I'm like, it's, oh, it is so great, Chris, because with your new idea, now I have to do more research and more work to find the right answer. And originally, we all agreed on what the answer was. Thank you so much for putting more work on my plate. Thank you so much for now that we have to think more about this and have another meeting because of you. This is a beautiful thing. No, people, most people are going to say we have a unanimous, cohesive, positive group thing going and you are interrupting it and you are (laughs) decreasing the speed of decision making in this group. And so here's the concrete thing that we have to do as a safeguard. One thing is we have to not just have a change in the norms, we have to clarify them every time that we are actually meeting or working on a new project. And that means is, and we, we want to focus less on conformity, less on positivity, less on cohesion, less on harmony in this room and for this project. Love each other. Hang out with each other. Um, text each other all the time. But for this project, we are trying to make the best decisions possible mm. and have the best solutions possible. And that means critical thinking. That means we are competing with each other not to win for the group to win and for the best ideas to survive. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that status and social popularity don't get overly weighted when we're thinking about who has the best ideas. And because of that, groups work best when people independently provide their ideas and questions and it's not attached to the individuals. Mm. And how, and you know, I used to work on wall street on the New York stock exchange floor. And I used to work for, um, you know, several firms. I worked at a law firm, um, worked for Basket of Robins and <laughs> Pathmark Supermarket. So I've worked in, you know, I've worked in blue collar places, white collar places, not just in academia. Every single one of these places, when you get into a group meeting, 
the person themselves offers their ideas and questions, which means people who are socially attractive, popular, that people want to be around and curry their favor, their ideas are weighted as better. And there is no correlation between how large, how loud you are and how good your ideas are. Mm -hmm. There's no correlation between popularity and how good ideas you are. And there's no correlation between whether or not you're physically attractive and how good your ideas are. And yet those things are taken into consideration if you don't anonymize the idea. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up too. I, I read a ton of books on uh, just why we listen to who we listen to. There's some great, great books about out there, but like, like kind of like you're talking about, like some of us, we don't even realize that we listen to people who are more attractive or taller or, you know, all these different subtle things. Like it, it even affects like the justice system sometimes, yeah. right? Like how the defendant looks and all these other things. And and yeah, I think it's important that people educate themselves about it. Cause like you mentioned, like just cause someone's being louder or uh, one of the reasons I enjoyed Susan Cain's book is it talks about how extroverts, right? A lot of people are paying more attention. We go along with their stuff when an introvert might just not be vocalizing some of these things. So I'm hoping your book helps people like that kind of like speak up a little bit. Is that, is that something that you're, you're hoping to get across with? Chris, Chris, if there was one book I was just about to bring up, it was Susan (laughs) Cain's book, Quiet. I mean, I mean, like, this is like Jungian synchronicity right now. I mean, (laughs) she, so she is, so I have like four archetypes of principled rebels and Susan Cain is a culture shifter. She modified the cultural norm that, Socially effervescent people, right? You're, you're extroverts. They like attention. They want the, they want the audience to be kind of a large audience around them. They love to tell stories. They love to like extend things. They like the, the exuberance, the high energy. Some people are, have a preference for low energy environments, particularly if you're from, you know, Eastern Asian cultures, even if you're mm. second, third generation. This, this is on average, of course, not everybody. And that our American work environments and education environments are designed for people that prefer high energy states. So yeah. people that like tranquility, contentment, um, you know, uh, just, just calmness, even this podcast conversation between you and I, this is a high energy, two high energy people that have gotten together. So one thing, for example, culturally that I do in my classroom that I learned from the educational literature is to make sure that people that prefer calm energy and work better with calm energy, in, not just introverts, but introverted learning styles, which means that you don't like to think extemporaneously, like in the immediate moment, you like to process things, reflect and contemplate on things. And then later comes your amazing idea. Well, yeah. that's not how most education environments are. So in the beginning of every class, or if I do a two or five day workshop in a, in an, a business organization, I come back the next day and say, what residuals or lingering comments do you have from the last time that mm. we spoke? And, and I tell them, I give this opportunity for those of you that weren't speaking in the moment because you are the type of person that likes to contemplate and reflect. Doesn't mean your ideas are better or worse. It means that you want to actually sift through ideas. I mean, if you don't give a, a pre-designed for those people, you have now lost ideas from potentially 50% of the environment because about mm-hmm. 50% of people have introverted, 50% of people have extroverted. That's about close to the distribution. Yeah. And what a horrible world and what a horrible little, you know, microsystems that we have in the world. 
if we don't let the quieter people give it have an opportunity to be express their voice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like uh, uh, those are the, the types who, you know, they're sitting and like thinking and uh, and stuff like that. Like when I get like when I'm you know having these one on ones, like I can be like you know energetic and all this other stuff. But like when I'm like in a business meeting and stuff, I'm just sitting there listening and everything like that. And that's why I love like Susan Cain's book and stuff because like in big social settings, I'm just like. I'm going to be the quiet one. I don't know. You know, I have a loud voice. So I usually just shut up and just sit there. So I love that. But, you know, speaking of these kind of like group uh, settings, I'm curious your thoughts. uh, And you touch on this in the book, but there's a lot of conversations, especially like in the social commentary or just social issues sphere about diversity, right? So there's all these like debates and arguments about no, you know, there shouldn't be, uh, you know, uh, we need to hire the best people. We need to have the best people in here and all this stuff. But, but diversity is good. I'll give you an example. I was, uh, I was listening to this, like, uh, Colin show. I'm not sure if anybody's heard of the Colin app. It's kind of cool. Podcasters are like going on there, but like their guests mm-hmm. can like chime in. It's almost like, uh, what that one app tried to do last year. Uh, why am I forgetting it? But anyway, oh, like, oh, that horrible clubhouse experience. There you go. Yeah. So it's like that, but it's mainly like podcasters and the guests can like come in, give questions and all that stuff. But anyways, I was listening on there and they were talking about trans issues. Right. And uh, one of the people asked, like, do you think, do you think uh, decisions, right? So you have a lot of uh, debate around this uh, swimmer, this transgender swimmer and stuff. Yeah. And, like, do you, yeah. They're like, do you think that should be decided by like scientists, you know, and all this stuff, or should activists be involved? And it's an interesting question because as a recovering drug addict, a uh, mental health advocate, I, you know, I'm involved in the community. I I've spoken at events and all this other stuff, and I'm not a scientist in the field, but I look at it. I'm like, yeah, like, cause whenever I'm, you know, watching the news or reading stories, like I've written some, um, uh, pieces for like Newsweek on addiction and mental health and all that. And it's like, yeah, I think you do need somebody who's just on the ground floor living through it. So that's an example of diversity, right? But now we have the Supreme Court nomination, right? And Joe Biden's like, I'm going to nominate the first black woman, da-da. and there's just all these like screaming and debates and stuff. And anyways, anyways, without giving too many of my thoughts, I'm curious your opinion, like where's that balance with having the best people, the best qualified people in a discussion and just having somebody, like you mentioned earlier, like an intern, right? Like you bring an intern in who has no experience, they're gonna see things completely different. Like I love to learn and I come in and I just have all these questions. Like, why is nobody talking about this? Have you ever thought about this? So anyways, I'll shut up. Tell me your thoughts on diversity. No, 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 I love it. And I love that that you go into radioactive topics. So, okay, so there's a few different angles to, to talk about with this. One is there are at least three reasons to have diversity. So right, so right now we're kind of talking about surface level diversity, genetically inherited traits kind of in, you know, in which, which I'm going to include neurodiversity underneath that umbrella. Mm-hmm. There's three, there's three reasons why we might do this. And let me actually do this Pulp Fiction style and give away the, the denouement, which is <laughs> we need to be more precise and more transparent about which of these reasons of why we want to increase diversity in our groups. So mm. one reason, representation. Um, if you know, there, there is just a, I think the number that I read yesterday is that there are more James, more people named James who are CEO than women who are CEOs in America. Really? That is a horrifying figure. Yeah. I mean, it's just, we're not even comparing men and women, men named James that goes in there. 
um, bad. That's bad, bad on society. Yeah. Um, and, and they're just, you know, just go into the NFL. I mean, if you look at the ratio of players that are black and brown versus people that are at the coaching ranks, um, you have a real optical problem here. So one reason that you want diversity is because there are not enough people that look like the people that are underneath the organization. And we know from science that when there is similarity in personalities and backgrounds and, it, and in a vis, visible characteristics, it can supercharge the mentorship experience between mentor and mentee. So mm. that's one reason why you might diversity. Um, the second, the second reason that you might, might want it is because for social justice reasons is that you are writing historical wrongs. You know, America has a horrible background, just as almost every single country in the world. Mm-hmm. And many of them still have an even worse right now. You know, go to Togo, Africa, and tell me how good you feel about having your wallet hang out your 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 slim jeans as you're walking around the neighborhood. Yeah, and that's a good reason of, in terms of like, listen, it's there. There have been legal obstructions that have been hard to overcome. In, in time. And then if you, you mentioned the criminal justice system, just the sheer problems of just yesterday, much less 20 years ago, in terms of the number of black Americans who grew up with their mothers or their fathers in jail means that they had fewer adult figures to pass down the wisdom of why education is important to them. And mm-hmm. they tend to be in low income neighborhoods where most teachers don't want to go to. So they don't, they're not invested in, in the future education and teaching them that here's why you want to work now for a later reward of going to college or going to a trade school to kind of develop skills. You can make money and actually support a family and live the life you want to opportunity hoarding that goes in there. So that's the second reason. Um, The third reason is the belief that by bringing someone in that looks different in terms of their genetically inherited traits, it's going to increase the difference of perspective, the different vantage points, and increase the knowledge and wisdom and experience in the room. For the third reason, so the first thing is you should be transparent about which one of those reasons, social justice, mentorship, or ends up increasing the actual, the pool of knowledge, wisdom, and perspectives in the room. Mm -hmm. This isn't happening right now. There's very few organizations that are clarifying which of those that they're waiting when they're making these decisions about diversity. In terms of the third one, listen, we need to see the world as it is, not how we want it to be. Mm-hmm. The data of over 30, of over 70 studies show that when it comes to race and sex and gender, this has almost on average a near zero correlation with the creative potential and the performance potential of a group. Mm-hmm. And that, and it, even cognitive diversity in terms of different academic backgrounds, different tasks and skills that you've learned over the years, only performs slightly better in terms of actually predicting, um, you know, oh, the group becomes wiser with cognitive diversity. Now, one of the reasons for this, why it's surprisingly low, the relationship between diversity and the performance of the group it's because we're not that effective at extracting the diverse perspectives and unique knowledge and information that diverse people bring to a group. So yeah. there's some, some ways you can say is that the reason that these effects are small are not because they're non-existent. It's because they are, they are dependent on whether someone actually has a culture 
that actually takes advantage, that's the wrong word, leverages the strength of the diverse people in the room. And so mm-hmm. you've probably seen this firsthand. I've seen it firsthand where people recruit a number of great diverse people in terms of race, sex, gender, neurodiversity, personality traits. But once you have the group together, the same three middle-aged white men percent <laughs> yeah. of the of the vocal time in the conversation, and nothing is done culturally to get to amplify those new voices in the room. So yeah, yeah the, the photo of your website looks great. It's everyone's slapping five together and someone's in a wheelchair and someone's black and someone's Asian American and yeah. someone's a little person. But what what they don't have is the audio of the of the conversation together when it's the two old white guys that are still taking up all the airtime. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't tell you, like, there's no, there is no possible way that I'm the only person on planet earth of all seven point, whatever billion of us. When I like watch the news and stuff, cause I'm very, you know, uh, I try to stay involved and up to date with like social issues and all these other things, you know, going on. And like, I, I see a lot of like wealthy college educated people that, that don't come from my background, writing, talking, explaining. I'm sitting here, I'm like, why are all of you talking for me? Because I see so many things missed. And and then you kind of get this uh, this Matthew effect, right? Where those voices just keep getting bigger and bigger and wider and wider. And now it's just becomes this echo chamber. I'm like, you guys, it doesn't seem like you guys even know what's going on down here with the rest of us. And that's why, you know, I try to, you know, do this podcast, I do my writing and all these other things. Like, I hope to offer like a different perspective of like, hey, here's what, here's what some of us might be seeing. But, you know, speaking of like, you know, uh, just uh, status or financial status, one of the main reasons I wanted to grab your book is because of this. And I'm, I'm sure you, you have plenty of stories that you could bring to mind that, you know, uh, where this happens, right? My girlfriend and I, we watch a lot of like documentaries and docu-series and stuff like that. Um, I'll give an example. This one always pops to mind when I think about dissent, insubordination, all this, was this uh, docu-series about this uh, young child who was the victim of uh, just, uh, just being like beaten, right? By his mom and his stepdad. And he ended up dying. I can't remember the story. It was a pretty big story. I think it was in Arizona, but yeah. They talked about like these social workers, right, who were involved and they saw these things, but because of the way the organization was laid out, nothing happened. And this kid ended up dying after, you know, him going to his teacher and the teachers doing this and everything like that. But, you know, uh, in more mainstream conversations, you have you have stuff like about Facebook coming out, right? And these whistleblowers and all these other things. Yeah. Um, you have so many stories of organizations, uh, uh, where people are like, yeah, I saw this stuff going on and da 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 da. And I'm like, I, I'm always asking myself, why did you not do anything? Why did you stay at that job? Like, I, I personally, um, you know, I'm fortunate that I'm just a curious person and I have like uh, a few different streams of income. So if I lost a job, like, I've, I haven't had a traditional job since September and I've been fine. You know what I mean? So, like, if a job is doing something that I disagree with and I'm like, this doesn't align with my values, my ethics, my morals. I'm out of there. But what I'm trying to get at is so many people, it seems, and I might be wrong. It seems like they are so afraid of the risks of dissenting, because if you bring this up, if you become a whistleblower and you talk about some of these stories in your book, like they're going to lose their job. How do I support my family? And I don't know. Part of this question is 
like, do you, do you think that we put too much emphasis on our income and have this like weird idea that we'll never get another job because we did this or like word will spread within the industry that we're like a troublemaker? Like, how do people deal with that risk? Because I just see too many, too many terrible tragedies within organizations because nobody opened their damn mouth. You know what I mean? You're making the hairs of my arm stand up. Chris, you were asked, you asked the best freaking questions. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so this is, I mean, this, you asked me before, what's the motivation of writing the book? It's to get out there and publicly educate people about the science, like the objective science of like, we can design these cultures so that those social workers, they have a direct channel to actually improving the life, the lives of the children that they're actually trying to help. And, you know, I know that you're a dad and I know this, like that, that story probably hit you pretty hard. It hits me hard just because because I'm a dad, every one of those. And you always, we need to be, we need, we need to be, let me get to your question in a second. We need to be more vigilant of using history as the backdrop to improve the future in terms of how things can be better. And every child, every single child in the foster care system, every child that's, that's mistreated in a parochial school, a religious school, a public school, a private school, every case could be, you should not just be deconstructing it in terms of to figure out what went wrong for that kid and that family. It should be about the culture must be modified as a function of anything that we find here, that it's system systemic to mm -hmm. how we have channels of communication where anyone or any person can pull the cord, just like at Toyota, like, you know, when they design these factories, that anyone on the factory line that sees a problem, there's a cord that they can pull. And the whole, the entire warehouse shuts down, the entire factory. And the boss doesn't yell at the person who pulls the cord. The boss says, whoa, thank you. Gratitude. Mm -hmm. uh, what went wrong? Let's fix it and let's get moving again. And why don't we have those cords in, in law firms, at, you know, in the courtroom, in, you know, you know in, the, in Congress, um, uh, you know, it, you know, in fast food restaurants. I mean, the cord should be there everywhere. So how do we get around this problem that you just kind of mentioned, which is, which is a huge one. One thing we have to acknowledge is we have a big, huge national problem where our health insurance is tied to our employment. That is a social, <laughs> that's a social yeah. norm that it's preventing people from speaking out. And I can't judge too hardly if you say that that's the reason is that not just that I could financially care for myself, my family, but my physical health. And so when people argue about, and I don't care the variant of it, some form of healthcare improvement where it is not tied to, if we lose a job, we lose our healthcare, is going to allow for more courage, more creativity, innovation. Besides just if people are healthier, they're just, they're just better citizens and they just and they actually cost less in terms of the healthcare system. So yeah. that's kind of step one, which obviously is not something simple to address. <laughs> yeah. But I think is, you know, one of the, one of the missions is everyone has to start being curious like you. You're saying that's one of your strengths and start asking questions. What do we have as a barrier that prevents someone that doesn't have the power and the status in the social hierarchy to say and speak of the flaws they see, the breakthroughs that they have, and the improvements that they recognize that are possible that are happening there. 
if mm-hmm. you don't have those pathways and you're not asking those questions, um, they're not going to magically form because we sort of have a Peter Pan syndrome is that as you be, are the intern and you wait your turn to speak, as you're the academic professor and you wait till you have tenure and then only then you're going to say the brave things. Well, by the time you get to the power position, you've got, you've realized all of the incentives are to stay silent, keep your head down, mm-hmm. do what everyone else is doing. Don't make waves. Do you really think 15 years later, these people with tenure are going to all of a sudden speak out? They've been trained like little chimpanzees not to do that. And what you <laughs> yeah. see is that because if tenure did what it was supposed to do, which was allow people to research controversial topics and issues, mm-hmm. you would see right now that at the cost of society that are asking questions about Biden's decision of to limit the playing field for a Supreme Court justice to not only black Americans, but only black female Americans, there should be questions. I'm not, I'm not going to offer the answer here, yeah. but at the minimum, the question should not be challenged. You yeah. should be asking, what is that? Who should be in the pool? And what's the evidence for, for and against having the pool as narrow and limited for a position that's a lifelong position that happens there? And then what racial groups are being represented already on the Supreme Court? Because there's a lot of racial groups that are out there. You yeah. know, you've got, you've got Native Americans, you've got Pan Pacific Islanders. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, there's, there's more, you know, there's more than just uh, black American women that aren't represented on the Supreme Court. And yeah. if my, my personal view, which kind of mimics Steven Pinker, is the only dangerous question is the idea that there's a dangerous question. My, mm-hmm. my add-on is it must come from a place of curiosity, not as like a, a fake question designed just to be kind of an annoying, obnoxious individual in a, yeah. in a conversation. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you this, and I, 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 I'll encourage everybody to get the book because I could talk to you all day about this, but the, my favorite part of the book is how to do this without being a dick, right? Like, like that's what I absolutely <laughs> love about the book. Like, you talk about it, you touch on it a little bit, but, you know, uh, so you're not just being somebody who's like, oh, well, what about this? And, you know, being that annoying person, right? But oh, we, we yeah. know that person, yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, but yeah, what you're talking about, this helps lead me into, you know, my next question I want to ask you, but how conversations and questions are getting shut down. Like you just mentioned tenured professors, you know, supposed to have some security to research. Like there are so many things I I brought this up uh, on another podcast episode that hasn't, no, it hasn't come out yet. But anyways, there was a, a professor who was, I believe they were asked to resign. Right. I don't know if they were tenured, but they were uh, talking about pedophilia and yeah, uh, yeah I remember you, that case. Right. And, and they wrote you know, a book. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've yet to read the book or anything like that. But I'll tell you this as a parent, I would much rather people talking about it, asking questions and researching it than no, we're not allowed to talk about it, quote unquote, normalize it. Because I'm like, then how are we going to find solutions for treatment, prevention, if we're not even allowed, if we're just going to say, these people are evil, get them out of here. That's all we need to know and not asking questions. But it it branches out further. And we have seen a few uh, professors who have dissented, right? Like I have an episode with Nicholas Christakis uh, from right. Yale. You know, he's coming out. But, you know, there are some professors who like, did that initial descent and now they've gone way off the rails with it. I won't mention their names, but anyways, yeah. anyways. So no, I, I think, yeah, no, I mean, 
That's no, sorry. I was, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was no, gonna, go for it. Because I think the the um, this, I mean this. I mean, for, I didn't read the book either. It's not high on my list to read. But you know, for studying the science of pedophilia and people who are suffering from it, um, there is a science there. And it, mm. I mean, this, I forget, his name is on is a uh, tip of the tongue right now. But there was a, re- a sex researcher in Canada who has actually led this work. He studied people with zoophilia who had um, uh. their sexual attraction was to animals. And he studied necrophilia, people that are sexually attracted to people that are dead. Uh, you know, there, there's research that are out there, and these are real individuals. And we can't, it, we can't say that we appreciate individuals and diversity, but only going to explore and consider the ones that are the ones that we prefer right now in society. Yeah. We kind of want to understand every subgroup of humanity and for the sake of improving humanity. And it's just like you said, which is that, you know, anyone that has kids, nieces, nephews, their own children, works with children, of course we want pedophilia to go to near zero, to yeah. absolute, absolute zero. And of course we want to, we have a natural instinct to want to punish as quick as, mm-hmm. as possible. But there are questions here and they're very radioactive questions, which is what is the best way to reduce pedophilia especially someone that made a previous offense. What's the best way to work with someone who has pedophilic ideas and fantasies and urges, but has yet to act out on them? What is the best way to work with someone that has a preference for pedophilic, I don't know if that's the proper term, pedophilic pornographic material, but Mm. they've never acted on it. They've never approached a kid. um, And they've never actually, there's no behavioral evidence that I've done something. Um, is the best way punishment and it, what is the best way to actually reduce the amount of shaming so that you have rehabilitation such that they can re-enter society and help the rest of us who are interested in this topic and trying to prevent it mm-hmm. to work with people that are also at risk in the future. I mean, some of the best criminals end up being the best detectives and, you know, accessories to police officers and some of the best people who experience Substance abuse problems are the best therapists that exist mm-hmm. on the planet. The best, the best supervisor who trained me as a clinical psychologist had a longstanding um, cocaine and crack addiction, and he was a master at working with people who had mm-hmm. addictions because he could describe exactly what someone looked like they were experiencing right then and there. And I sat there on the outskirts not having had this condition before mm-hmm. was like what, how did you notice that like what like what you know what were the what were the signals what were the cues that you picked up on it's like oh did you notice how it kept on putting two fingers into his pocket and was scratching his pants almost as anxious it to happen there i was like no i wasn't <laughs> I, was looking, I was making eye contact at the time and yeah. we we can bring people that we have a natural distaste for a natural kind of dislike for and try to bring them in as allies in our mission to improve the health and the well-being of children as opposed to banning them and ostracizing them behind jails. Because if they ever come out, you know, the research is pretty, pretty clear that unless you are in an educational program to get a degree or increase your skills in jail or prison, is that most people come out where with so little income and so few job mm-hmm. prospects and have a hard time getting housing because you have to answer that question. Yes or no, do you have a, have you had a felony conviction? 
Where yeah. are they supposed to go if they go back to the criminal community that actually offered them resources before they were in there? We have to help them in some capacity, yeah. not, not just because to be compassionate, because we want to resolve these societal problems. Yeah, no, I, I love that you touch on that, that criminal uh, justice and reform aspect of it because, you know, uh, I was in my active addiction, uh, drugs and alcohol for nearly a decade here in Las Vegas. And the only thing that separates me from uh, me from people getting out of jail or prison is that I never got caught, right? And because of that, I have so many more opportunities. Uh, I worked in treatment and I noticed what you're saying too. All of the therapists, and I, I did more like peer support because I'm not you know, a licensed therapist, but I noticed that they connected with people who had been through it and they looked skeptically at people who were just educated, even though you know they were great at their jobs, but there's this weird like kind of trust. But it's interesting too, because it seems like the technology field is one of the only ones that really does this, where they hire hackers yeah, to help yeah. to their security systems. But yeah, there's there's a lot of opportunity there. But uh in this realm too, you know, like uh I think I'm just more empathetic to uh brain like or oh, just mental uh health disorders, right? Because uh, you know, I became a mental health advocate once I started educating myself. I'm like, hey, we're not talking about this enough or in the right way or, you know, whatever. And I noticed that we as a society were kind of picking and choosing which mental health aspects, like, okay, anxiety and depression, let's talk about that all the time, right? But you get somebody, right. you get, you know, our massive homeless population of schizophrenia and stuff. Those are bad people. Those are crazy people. You know, it's like, well, if we're going to show compassion to these people with mental health issues, why not these people? But this leads me to what I was going to ask is the questions and taking risks. So I don't have time to get into all the details of it, but um, one of the reasons I enjoyed your book and appreciate the topic is because in 2019, I was canceled. I had a sprawling YouTube channel, almost a hundred, well, I had a hundred thousand subscribers until I lost them all, but it was all around mental health and addiction. And some of the reasons that I got in trouble, the risk I took was asking questions about, for example, dissociative identity disorder, right? Very controversial. Very. Uh, very, right? Uh, for those listening, multiple personality disorder, if you're unaware of the new term. But yeah, uh, it's become this like growing trend on social media. So if you ever want to do some fun psycho psychological research, look at social media because there's people on there like, oh, I have 150 different alters, right? And things like that. But anyways, uh, I made videos discussing some of the research, questioning it a little, and they're like, no, you're not allowed to ask about this, right? It shuts down that question. Eventually, right. some other things. Uh, yeah, I got canceled. I, uh, I had to just stop what I was doing. I went through a lot of therapy, went to a lot of 12-step meetings because I just had the internet coming after me. And because of books like yours and books I've uh, read and authors I've had on, on just, you know, speaking up and speaking out, I've regained a little bit of courage but again, this goes back to that kind of social risk, right? So whether you're a journalist, whether you're within an organization, there is that risk of going against the group norm, right? The conformity we see, all, I, I've tried to read as much as I can about group psychology and how, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's bad to go against the group back in the hunter gatherer days. If you were the only person saying, uh, I don't think praying to the rain God is going to work you might get in trouble, right? So it's like built into us. So, you know, I'm somebody who personally experienced it and I'm just curious, how do we overcome that fear? Because in this age of the internet and cancel culture, yeah. it's sometimes hard. There's a lot of risk and there, there's a, there, it seems like there's more benefits to just shutting up and not bringing up some no. of these questions. 
There is. And, uh, and I'm so sorry that you experienced that because, I mean, I'm sure you read Scott Lilienfeld's work where he summarized literature on dissociative identity disorder to say, listen, th there's no blame here, but we do know that there is, the technical term is an iatrogenic effect of therapy, which is, I mean, we know this scientifically that therapists often induce, induce the multiple personalities or yeah. alters in people. And yeah, it's controversial, but our goal is to help people experience mental health and actually improve the quality of their lives and actually improve the quality of their relationships. And, and sometimes you have to hear the kind of this hard information. Yeah. So I don't have a quick answer for this because I do think society really has a love affair with public shaming right now. And, <laughs> and, and really the search for quick fixes and mm. it's, you know, social media kind of really perpetuates this, which is that nobody's, there are very few people searching for, well, what is the best evidence for this accusation? And what's the best, what evidence exists that raises doubts and raises questions about things? And then, and is the source that I'm going to or acquiring information from, what are the potential biases, conflicts of interest in terms of financial conflict of interest, psychological conflict of interest of trying to tell a story that's saying, you know, trying to showcase I'm progressive or I'm anti-cancel culture. As you were describing, some of these people that are anti-cancel culture have gone, they've just taken on every unnecessary yeah. cause just because this is what people are disagreeing with. And so it's it's a kind of a sad commentary of they had these great critics, great cultural critics have kind of, go, as you said, gone off the deep end a little bit. I really believe that we have to learn how to have a deliberate pause before penalizing or before making judgment publicly for other people in terms of trying to do due diligence and think like a scientist and collect information and evidence mm -hmm. because we, I mean, everybody knows by now that, that the way that the mainstream media and social media operates is commodification of attention. And Jay Van Bevel, who I know is on, you know, one of your other podcasts yeah. and, is, you know, a good friend who wrote a great book. Um, the power of us, where he t his research shows is that the more terms that involve indignation, anger, fury, rage, these high energy negative emotions, the more things get shared and the more things become viral there. So the media companies know this. They're using you as the user to kind of, they, they know that you're going to pass on this information. They're going to couch this in the worst possible framing possible that someone did something wrong. And it's up to us. And that's unfortunate. It's high energy. It's high effort to actually acquire information to think independently, which gets back to something we said earlier, which is we need to create a norm of independent thinking and critical thinking. And we need to have media that allows it to be easy for us to have hyperlinks to other sources that say, offer counter information and counterpoint. Yeah. It's like having, like having panels of people that have disagreeing views and the, and not having Jerry Springer as the moderator where people throw chairs <laughs> at each other, but actually someone that's interested in, in actually distilling the perspectives of both sides, not to find middle ground. Because sometimes the, the answer is to the extreme of one of those two extreme views. Mm -hmm. So the answer, you know, but the, the real thing is to, to, to expand the time horizon and ask two years from now, five years from now, how is this going to be helpful if people are more inclined to not share their opinion publicly and only with their close friends in dimly lit rooms? Because yeah. what happens is 
You don't know people's biases. You don't know people's prejudices. You haven't gotten rid of anything. All you've done is put it underneath the surface so that you have no idea that non-randomly, depending on what you look like and how you think and where you're from, you are going to potentially be, be mistreated. And it's going to be like a speed trap by an officer on a highway. And you're going to have no idea. I would love everything in the dark recesses of humanity to be exposed so we can work with it. We could play with it, but that can't happen if you're going to be penalized by sharing um, a left of center view that you have. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Like, uh, you know, one of the things that, that keeps me going and helps, you know, me, you know, overcome what happened to me is, is knowing that there is, I don't like using the word silent majority because I don't even know if it is a majority, but there are a lot of people who, who don't speak publicly, but they'll message me in private. A great example yeah. is when that happened to me in 2019, I had a lot of friends who were, who would talk to me privately, but wouldn't acknowledge our relationship publicly. And I respected that because I was like nuclear at the time. Anybody who stood up for me, they, they would go after them. Right. But, but knowing that there are people and I'm hoping books like yours, you know, reach the masses and uh, you know, the best, the best thing that comes from your book is like, people getting this kind of courage and knowing the science and knowing, you know, Hey, there's a strategy to this. There's a way to do this. There's a way to foster this environment and all of that. But, you know, uh, one of the last things I want to ask you about was kids, right? So both of us parents and I just knowing, knowing as much as I, I know and have read about conformity is something that scares me for my son because addiction runs in my family. My mom is a recovering alcoholic. She uh, she helped me get sober when she was seven years sober. So she's had about 17 years, right? Uh, so I'm worried about my Good son. Yeah, I, yeah, we and we live in Las Vegas, so I'm worried about my son getting tied up in drugs and alcohol and bad behaviors and all these other things, right? And uh, conformity is not just you know for us adults, but it's something we have to worry about with our kids. And I, I try to tell my son about interesting psychological studies and, you know, uh, like the Ash conformity experiment. Like I tell him that, he's like, what? You know, about like the lines and everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a study about uh, where they put people in and like smoke is coming into the room, but everybody acts like nothing's happening. So there's a lot of ways we can form without, you know, even realizing it or why we're doing it. But anyways, anyways. So I'm like, I try to tell my son like, hey, um, here's what I do with my son. And I'm just curious your thoughts for all us parents out here. So uh, something I realized at a young age is that just authority figures aren't always 100% right, right? That's like right. we know experts aren't always right, you know? And I, I've taught him like, hey, if your teacher ever says something that's like questionable, right? Like feel free to ask questions, but if you think it might cause an issue, ask us at home, you know? Like there's a lot of conversations about like, you know, critical race theory and banning of books and all these things. And my son has literally experienced none of it, right? Because I'm half black, look white. He's a quarter black. So he doesn't even look like he has a drop of it in him. I'm like, Dylan, has anybody ever, have any of your teachers ever made you feel bad for being white? And he looked at me like I was insane. So I'm like, okay, it's not <laughs> as widespread as we think. But anyways, I've told him that if he doesn't feel comfortable asking in class, just come home and ask me or your mom or grandma or whoever and say, hey, my teacher said this doesn't seem right. What do you think? Right. But I do want him to speak up and, you yeah. know, and have a voice and not feel like he can't ask questions or dissent a little bit. But at the same time, like your book teaches, I don't want him to be a dick. So <laughs> for us parents, how do we how do we foster children 
who ask questions, but they're not, you know, undermining authority because they need to respect people who are obviously a lot more knowledgeable than, and they have a more developed prefrontal cortex and all that good stuff. <laughs> so yeah. what is intense? You know, Chris, you don't need a PhD in psychology. I mean, you, you have, de- I mean, all, of the, all a PhD in psychology means is you sat in a formal classroom and read books and talked about them and you've read and integrated and synthesized all these books. Yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to I'm, avoid the student debt. I am <laughs> anointing you as an honorary psychologist just listening to you ask these questions and talk about <laughs> Thank them. you. You know, everything you're doing is exactly how I want every parent to do it. I mean, one of the things going, so this goes beyond you, but it's kind of every parent is what I love about what you described is you are not imposing your ideology. Just like in this, in this conversation, I love when we started talking about diversity, you said, I, I don't want to share what my views are. And that's such a great way to raise kids, to raise the younger generation, which is that can we not indoctrinate them with our, with our views? Forget society's views. Is yeah. like, I want, like, for example, like in a, in a relevant realm is that um, I'm an atheist and, that, and, and I'm also Jewish. So I really respect, you know, the Jewish culture and I had a bar mitzvah and, you know, all that jazz. And, um, and I've taught my kids from, from an early age, like at the age of six maybe, is that mm-hmm. when they ask questions about God and heaven and hell, and I let them explore this all on their own. And until they asked me the question of, like, do you believe in God? <clears throat> I just didn't go there because it was irrelevant. It was, and, I, and I've said to them, listen, do not adopt my view of the world because there is great solace in having the prediction and a system and a framework of humanity where some of it might be right, some of it might be wrong. Some of it is we have no idea because science can't test it. And so I want you to test drive everything. So I've taken them to synagogues. I've taken them to mosques. I've taken them to churches. And they're all amazing places as long as you have like good people that are in the, have, at the platform, right? As mm-hmm. long as they're not proselytizing, they're offering great stories. They're talking about morals. They're talking about ethics. Now, all of my kids have, I've been fighting with them because they've all kind of like embraced atheism. And I've said, no, don't do it because you can't argue yet. Why <laughs> don't believe in God? And, and I think it's not to tout myself as an amazing parent because I think I suck as much as everybody else and I wish there was a manual. Yeah. I say it is that do this with your kids about politics. Of like, tell them, listen, you should not have a political party yet. Like, you're not ready for one yet. You're not ready to be a red. You're not ready to be a blue. You're not ready to be the green party, whatever the hell they believe in, or libertarian. Like, you should be asking yourself, what, what, issues do you care about and where are you starting to learn stuff about you shouldn't have a firm view on immigration because you haven't even left the state yet in your own car (laughs) and you shouldn't have a firm firm view about universal basic income because the only income you get is when i give you five bucks on a tuesday so so the idea that there are people out there who are listening who are or know people who are raised their kids of you are a republican you're a democrat um just as Richard Dawkins, I don't like the way he frames it, is that, you know, there are no child um, Muslims and there are no child Jews and there are no child Christians. Uh, you're not born with the religion. I don't, he, he likens it to child abuse, which I'm really not a fan of that metaphor yeah. at all. Um, but don't talk the baby out with the bathwater. We should train our kids not to have ideologies, a lot of ideas, a lot of learning about science, a lot of education, and they should be asking Chris just what you're doing. Tons of questions. 
any teacher that does not allow a kid to ask a question. It's a problem. And here, and I want to add one more really, really important addendum to this. When kids ask questions, and I think your son is 13. Yeah, he just turned 13. Yeah. So I have twin 15-year-old daughters mm. and, a, and a nine-year-old daughter. So when you get to 13 and 15, you don't ask questions well. You, I mean, adults <laughs> don't ask questions well. So the question comes off of, wait, what do you mean? Like Japan was better than us, uh, you know, before World War II, like they were a bigger superpower. Like we're better than Japan. Like what, what are you talking about? Are you, a, are, you, are you like anti the USA? Are you like one of those people that hate your country? So that might be the kid's question. Yeah. In there, in this mean, aggressive way, is a very good question, which was at particular times in history, what was the best superpower and which criteria are you using? Now, that's not what a kid's going to say at 13, 15, but that's really their question. Yeah. Your job as an adult figure is to say, okay, first, I just want to say, I love that you're asking a question. If you asked it this way, I would have been much more receptive and open and excited about your question. This is a little bit, let me tell you how to kind of, how to ask a question better. Um, so, but I get it though. Like you're, you're getting your hands dirty. Like, listen, I just want you to keep asking questions. Yeah. So don't shame them for how they ask the question. They're just learning. It's a hard thing to do. And then do your best at treating them that they are intelligent and wise and can receive knowledge from you and answer their question. Not like they're a little kid. Don't say, go read the book. Don't say you should know this because right now and there, you're not just teaching that kid. You're teaching everyone else who is listening of, should I ever ask a question in this classroom with this person ever again? Mm. And I think a lot of people shut down, not just the individual, but a whole group of people have now. And just think of the damage that is wrought by the unanswered questions, the residual unsatisfied curiosity of someone who shuts down people too early. And we do it as parents. I've done it before. We do it as teachers. Mm -hmm. I've done it before. And every time they're the biggest regrets that I have um, as a teacher, as an educator, and as a parent. And I want to pass this on because this is, you know, we can, we can retrain ourselves and we can keep making mistakes. And the beauty of it, it's just, it's just like playing wiffle ball where sometimes you're playing in the street and it hits the tree and you're like, Oh, that's, that's interference. That's Intel. We got a do over. You get a do over the next morning you wake up the next day you go to class and you say, you know what, everyone, I got a mea culpa. I've got to apologize. Um, Jessica asked a question yesterday. I got really defensive. Um, I didn't like the way that she asked it and I was rude to her and it should matter how she asked it. Um, I was in the wrong and I want to start this class by just saying, I apologize. Um, can you guys forgive me? And we can do that over and over again. And just, and society needs a lot of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love everything you just said. And I'm, I'm just, I, I promise this is the last question. So let me ask you this. Did you just hit on something? No, you're think, asking great questions. <laughs> I think this is so important, not just as parents, but everybody, any type of authority figure, because we're so just in tune with status and all that. But like you said, like there, there are things where, you know, uh, like, you know, if I'm just in a mood, I have a lot of stuff going on, bills, stress, whatever it is. Right. And I'll shut down my son. And I never, I never want to create an environment where he doesn't feel like he can ask questions. Uh, there are even times where he'll ask something and I'll keep like trying to get him to explain. And he's just like, Oh, never mind. And I, I'm like, no, I'm just not understanding. 
ask your question, right? And then I figure out what he was trying to say and stuff like that. But anyways, like with the, the, the apology aspect. So when I hear you like talking about like, oh, I'll come back into class, say, hey, I want to apologize for that, 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 everything. And this is something I've had to learn to do just with my son and say, hey, sorry, I was short with you or whatever, like I'll be doing something. And, you know, kids, sometimes they'll ask you something at a very inopportune time. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'll go back. I'm like, hey, sorry, like now I have time. Let's sit down, let's work through this or whatever. Maybe it's, he just needs help with something. But anyways, that apology, right? We feel like, I think a lot of us, uh, it, it's, it, we have this idea that it's like this sign of weakness, right? Yeah. Or you're a teacher and now, oh, all of a sudden, now I'm coming down to their level and I need to be, you know, this person, whether it's a parent, yeah. a teacher, a boss, whoever it is. So last question, like how, how do you check your ego to go through with that and come back and say, hey, my bad, sorry about that. Let's, you know, bring that back up or whatever it is. Yeah, it, it's a good, it, you know, a lot of these things are, are provocative questions we have to start asking ourselves. Um, I mean, one thing that I learned this from Vic Draker, who's a, a public health professor at University of Michigan, who wrote a great book called On Purpose. And um, he had a, his, his daughter died way too young. And, and he talks about that one of the, the things that he holds on to as a teacher is he imagines all of them being his daughter. I mean, every time it goes in there. And so here's, here's a, and let me transform a tragic story into a question that we should be asking ourselves, which is, um, to what degree am I being respectful of a younger version of me who would be in this situation? Mm. And so it's, it's, it's a, it's a self-distancing exercise and it's a perspective taking exercise. To what degree would I be, would I be respectful of a younger version of me? who's acting that way towards me. And so we have to think about our past selves and, and take this. And, so just, and let, the reason that I give it this way is because there might be a bunch of reasons why you don't really adore the kids in the room or you don't adore <laughs> the kids who's bugging you. So just think about your younger self. How would you like it if your younger self was treated you this way? And it makes you really want to apologize because We've all had the baggage of so many adults who have wronged us. And I'm not, you know, there's the physical abuse and the emotional abuse and the sexual abuse. And I'm, and believe it, that's in its own separate category of, you know, the, the world of horrors and tragedies. I'm just talking about the teacher that said, I remember in fourth grade, I was in a spelling, it's just, it wasn't even a spelling bee. It was like a spelling marathon in the class. And for whatever reason, it took, Keep it in mind, it's fourth grade, so it's about 10 years of age. Mm. The teacher turned to me and said, Todd, nail, spell it. And my mind went blank. I just had like public speaking anxiety and I just couldn't get any words out. And Miss Croft, she said this to me, I thought you were smarter than you were. You're not. Dang. And I, to this day, still remember what it felt like physiologically in my body. I remember what it felt like to have students turn around and actually have their finger waving their finger at me like they were Dikembe Mutombo and they just blocked, they just blocked my layup. <laughs> and, I and I remember the teacher's eyes like laser focused on me of like how it was a disappointment to her. And meanwhile, what I couldn't communicate then, God, am I choking up? I feel like I'm going to cry. Um, mm. what, I could, what I couldn't portray then is I really want to be able to, I know this, I think I know this, but I'm so anxious right now. I can't get the words out. Yeah. And if he was able to hear that, he would have known 
that the, what she said was wrong and it was, that it was sticky and it was powerful and she abused that power with me. Yeah. And I tell this story and I'm emotional with this story because it's good to remember that you have more power and influence than you think you do. And this is oh. Vanessa Bond's work. She has yeah. a book, you have more influence than you think. She we was on too. More... Oh, it's great. No, it's great. Yeah. Um, you know, we forget how much power we have and I don't want to get, you know, Spider-Man about kind of the power you have you <laughs> properly, but think about that is that if you get it wrong, he could have turned back the next class and apologized to me, but you yeah. didn't. And it would have fixed things. It really would have fixed things. And I think let's not be hurt. I'm yeah. sure she's not alive right now. And I don't want to throw her under the bus, but I'm throwing her under the bus. Um, let's not be hurt. Let's just, Let's do yeah. the apology because this stuff has lasting residual pain in people's identities. Yeah. No, I, I, I have a very similar story. Like, as you were saying that, I had a story from first grade to Miss Fanger. Similar story, right? And, and that stuff sticks. And I think when we do distance ourselves and we, and we can bring up our own experiences and just have that empathy, you know what I mean? Like, I'll say this, like one of the reasons I encourage my son to ask questions and I try to listen to him and, you know, you know, treat him, you know, with the maturity I expect from him is because the number one thing I hated as a kid was this line from adults because I said so. I'm like, yep. I'm like, are you what? Yep. <laughs> you know, like yep. no explanation needed. I'm just the adult. So, so yeah, I, I, I love it. I love that you do that with students, with your kids and everything. And I just hope we all just, we encourage that with our, with our children because I think that helps foster critical thinkers, people who will dissent, people who do all these things because it was encouraged as they were growing up, you know? So your book's not only good for, you know, business professionals and all these other people, but for parents and teachers and everybody needs your books. So Todd, I could keep you here all day, but, but let everybody know, uh, where's the book? Where can they find it? We're recording this right before it kind of comes out. So give us the info on it. So thanks for all the kind words. I appreciate it. And I mean everything. I mean, talking to you is freaking, this is a great use of an hour and a half of my time. <laughs> um, so uh, the book's available everywhere. It's on, you know, it's on Amazon, it's Barnes Noble, it's, it's Powell's, your local bookstore. Um, and just go to my website, toddcash.com, and listen, ask me questions. I, I, I don't have an assistant. I answer everything myself. So I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, Todd Cashin. I got the donate everywhere. Beautiful. I love it, Todd. Thanks so much for your time. And yeah, when the next book comes out, we'll be doing this again. All right. Great. No, I love talking to you. You, you are you are one of the wise ones. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Todd Cashin. Did I not tell you that he is just like a super cool guy? And yeah, I could I could talk to him forever. It it was so great being able to chat with him. And yeah, something that we we talked about, and uh, you know, he had some great input on. And some of you know this, like something I think about all the time, and I try to read and learn as much as possible about is uh, self deception and denial, right? And how do we know we're doing things for the right reasons? How do we check our motives? How do we know that when we check our motives, we're not lying to ourselves and all these other things? And, you know, it's a process. And, you know, something that I've had to do, not just in my sobriety, but, you know, in life in general, is just really be intentional and sit back and reflect and slow down and take my time and ask myself, like, why am I doing this? What What is the purpose? What What is the underlying motivation, right? And I try to break that thing down. And if need be, 
I turn to the people I trust most in my life, whether it's my lovely girlfriend, you know, or my friends, my support group, whoever it is, and be like, hey, like, you know, uh, am I going about this the right way? Do you think my motors are, you know, decent or, you know, whatever it is. So yeah, um, there, there's so much in this book that we didn't even get to touch on. So please, 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 like I said in the intro, do yourself and this world a favor by grabbing a copy of Todd's book. It is out now. Like I said, if you're an audio listener like me, it is out in audio format as well. So head down to the description, follow Todd, grab a copy of his book. All right, but a few other things before I let you go. First off, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. Uh, head over to The Rewired Soul YouTube channel. Make sure you're subscribed over there. This way you don't miss any upcoming episodes. But most importantly, I love chatting with all of you. Uh, another thing, uh, if you want to support the podcast, uh, there's two things that you could do that are absolutely 1,000% free. One of them, if you like this conversation or any conversation that we have on this podcast with any of the authors or, or bonus guests that we have on, share it. Share these episodes over on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever it is. Tag me if you like. I love that stuff. Uh, that helps out a lot. The other thing, make sure you leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. And you're like, Chris, Chris, I listened on Spotify. Hey. That's okay. That's it. It's all right. Okay. But you could head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. That's all I'm saying. All right. So no matter what platform, if you even if you're listening on Google or Stitcher or Amazon or whatever platform, uh, if you could leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, it helps out a ton. If any of these other platforms have a rating and review system, you can leave it there too. That helps out as well. But the way uh, the reasons these help out is it helps with the algorithms. And uh, yeah, when you share it and stuff, it helps get the world out, uh, the word out there into the world. All right. Um, and yeah, just a few other things. Uh, if you want early ep uh, versions of these episodes, I release all of the normal episodes a day early to paid Substack subscribers. So that's linked down in the description. Five bucks a month or $50 for a year. And you get all of the episodes a day early. All of the regular episodes are typically with the authors and everything like that. Bonus episodes, I just release those on the weekends. So yeah, but all the bonus episodes, like the two we've had this week, boom, you get them a day early. And some of that comes back to help support the podcast, what I'm doing. Uh, and then lastly, down in the description below, there's an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. And this is a service that I've personally used uh, because I'm all about my mental health. But but check it, like therapy, is it's really good. Like if we're talking about dissent and insubordination, like a lot of us are conflict averse. Like I know I am. I, I was just a chronic people pleaser and I avoided confrontation and all that. And therapy can help with that. Like I can't stress enough. I think one of the biggest misconceptions about therapy is like, People think that you have to be like mentally ill, like you need a diagnosis to go to therapy. But if I could wave a magic wand and give everybody therapy, I would in a heartbeat. So if I ever find a genie, first wish, everybody gets therapy. Boom. But anyways, uh, if you want some affordable online therapy, like in the meantime, until I find a genie, check out that affiliate link down below for better help online therapy. All right. So another huge, huge thanks to Todd for taking the time to come on the podcast. Make sure you follow him, grab a copy of his book, The Art of Insubordination. It is out now. And yeah, uh, we've had two episodes this week and I do have a bonus episode coming for you this weekend. And you're really, really going to enjoy it. It is with Rob 
Henderson, and we're going to be talking about luxury values and the culture wars. And it is such a fantastic conversation. Can't wait for you all to hear that. So that'll be up this weekend. All right. But until then, have an amazing rest of your day and I'll see you next time.